chapter 1, verse 3 to 11. That's Philippians chapter 1 on page 1178 of the Church Bible. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because, you are in par- because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. <coughs> it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You can find it in the Church Bibles on page 1029. That's Luke 3, verses 1 to 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Pentarch of Eritrea, and Trachonitis, Alessanius, Tetrarch of Abilene, being the high priest god of Anias and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling from the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. This is the everyone how are you all good 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 do you mind if i turn rudolph on i've noticed his battery pack has uh, not been switched on there we go i spend most of my life during this time buying batteries and turning things like this on at home so uh, you know it's good to have him with me up here as company one day every tongue will confess you are lord one day every knee will bow and still the greatest treasure remains for those who choose you now. Isn't that a wonderful line from the song we sung at the beginning? He is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And this season of Advent is so, so, so powerful. And this morning we remember the prophets. Uh, last week it was the patriarchs, the daddies of the faith, the prophets this week. Next week we focus on John, but we won't be here. We'll be up at the vineyards. But you get a double dose of John at this time of year because John was very much like one of those Old Testament prophets, the last in a great line of men and women who are pointing the way to Jesus. 
So is God in charge of time? Is he in charge of history and detail? Has he got perfect timing? Yes, you bet he has. Remember Dr. Luke at the start of his gospel. When he writes to his mate, Theophilus, now whether Theophilus was a real person or whether it's a play on words, meaning God lover, we don't know, but he writes, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught, the certainty. And so I love it here at the start of chapter 3 when Luke sets the scene for who the big cheeses in power were at the time when God pressed play. When God hit the button and said, now, on this particular phase of his mission to save humanity from sin. So Luke lists the key players knocking around at the time, and these were Tiberius Caesar, who was head of the Roman Empire, the emperor, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Judea in charge of that particular region on behalf of the empire. Then we get the Herods, Philip and Antipas, along with this guy called Lysanias. And they're in charge of a province that's been split into four regions, hence the term and the word Tetrarch. The days of Herod the Great are over. He's been dead for over 20 years now. And so Antipas has Galilee to look after. Lysanias has Abilene to look after. And much like the clergy these days, poor Philip's been given two regions to try and cover. <laughs> and in the Jewish culture of the day, Luke tells us that the high priest at the time was Caiaphas. The Romans had sacked his father-in-law, Annas, and they'd made him high priest instead. Now, that must have been a little bit awkward at those family meals. But to the Jews, Annas was still referred to as a high priest. They considered it a lifelong title to be high priest, a bit like former U.S. presidents or archbishops of Canterbury. And we know from piecing all of this detail from Dr. Luke together that the point in history is now between around AD 26 and 28. And after 400 long years of prophetic silence from God within Israel, something significant is about to happen. And Luke writes that when all these rulers were in power, the word of God came to John son of Zechariah in the wilderness. You may recognize uh, Michael York there from Jesus of Nazareth. Yep, my mum fancied him too. <laughs> the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness, not within the corridors of imperial power, nor in the hierarchy of religion, but the word of the, of the Lord came outside and away from society to a rather quirky and unconventional guy who was related to Jesus. He came to John. And it's John who, at this point in time, stands at the center of history and hope. What was he doing in the wilderness in the first place? Well, to the spiritually minded of the day, the wilderness was considered a testing place, a place you went to, a place you stayed in, a place that you prayed alone in for spiritual growth. And in the wilderness, you weren't influenced by what was going on in society. If God told you something, your message wouldn't be compromised or colored by what you saw around you. 
you'd be protected from falling into hypocrisy, unlike the religious elite of the day. The wilderness was a difficult place. We know how hard it was for Jesus, don't we, before his public ministry started. But it's where God chose to speak to those he would then use to challenge society. And in the wilderness, John must have known that God was preparing him for something special. The angel Gabriel had told his mum, Elizabeth, that this child would be a Nazarite, someone set apart for God. So here he was in the wilderness, set apart for God, waiting to go. And at this point in history, when all these big cheeses are in charge, the Holy Spirit says, now, now. So in this season of Advent then, as we once again study JTB, as I like to call him, I want us to look at both his character and his calling and see how his unique message back then sharpens and challenges our message today. We'll focus on his call to repentance, his call to go public, and his call to be a signpost to someone greater. And along the way, I'll just pose a few questions to all of us, if that's all right. Yeah? Okay. So, firstly, let's look at the message of repentance that John preached alongside his water baptism. Now, he leaves the wilderness, and he goes out preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what Luke tells us. And he's saying to the people, look, acknowledge your sinfulness. It's a very real condition turn from it. And don't you think it's interesting that John decides to use water to baptize people? That's what the Jews used when a Gentile came along and the Gentile said, I want to convert to Judaism. I want to become a Jew. And when this happened, the Jews would symbolically baptize these converts with water as a sign of being cleansed from being filthy, dirty, Gentile scum. Because that's how they were considered by the Jews of the day. And interestingly, John now applies the same principle to the Jews, to the people of Judea coming in their droves to the edge of the wilderness to see a hairy man in strange clothes hanging out at the water's edge. He's turning the tables on them. It's like he's saying, you know, you lot think you're all perfect, do you? Because you're descendants of Abraham. You obey the religious laws and do this and that, and it makes you feel good, and you've got all your faith and spirituality all sussed out. Uh-uh. Repent, acknowledge that you're not perfect, and be baptized with water. You see, John is leveling the playing field for everyone at this point in society. Make the pathways of your lives straight before God. Prepare the way for someone great is about to burst on the scene. Luke wrote this gospel for a non-Jewish audience. Matthew's gospel is very Jewish. Luke's, it's for everyone. And all the Gospels are for everyone. But Luke has a particular desire to share the good news with the world around and outside of Israel. He was a Greek, Luke was. He was a, a missionary companion of Paul. He was educated. He was a doctor. He wanted to connect his readership with passages like this. He then quotes from Isaiah. He wanted us all to know that from the greatest to the least in society, whether Jew or Gentile, the good news of Jesus is for everyone. 
But for the religious elite of John's day, this was a sting in the tail. And so, does the way you live your life now, does it communicate to those around you that the good news of Jesus is for everyone and not some churchy sect? Or only for the educated middle classes? What vibes are you giving off to those around you as you go about your Christian life? Are you leveling the playing field for those in your community? Are you truly communicating that this good news is for everyone? Secondly, let's look at John's call to go public and to get baptized. It wasn't the baptism we have today. John's was preparatory, you know, get ready, folks. And it was anticipatory, because someone awesome's coming. Our baptism comes about after we've accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's where we go public with our newfound faith, isn't it? Yes, we turn from evil and we repent of our sins, but we also join the family of God, the church. And we also pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives. So there's slight differences with the baptism of the church and the symbolic baptism of repentance and cleansing which John was carrying out at the Jordan. But here's some questions to think about when we think of what John was doing. Firstly, have you been baptized? If not, well, give it some serious thought. This Advent, this Christmas time, rather than just being an attendee at Meadgate, do you want to nail your colors to the mast and become someone publicly known for being a follower of Jesus. If you've not been baptized, come and chat to me or to Sue or to anyone in the prayer team. And we can talk about how you go about doing that. And for those of us who have been baptized, are we willing to continue to live public lives of Christianity? Public ones, not private ones. Public ones. I ask this because it's getting harder and harder and harder, I think, to be a Christian in Western culture. Because our culture denies the exclusive truth claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We live in a culture of loud, angry, and competing ideologies. And when we stick our heads above the cultural parapet, we will get shot at. But John knew his calling. The wilderness had confirmed that calling. We know our calling, right? We know our calling? It's good. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's not a private calling. That's a public one. That's what we're told to do. And where are you going now in your Christian life? Where am I going? To have this calling confirmed and reaffirmed. Where's your place of listening for and listening to the Spirit? Where is that place? Where's that wilderness? You know, that might be in your job. Do you live um, and work, sorry, do you work in a dead-end job at the moment? A job that you're frustrated with? But does that job, though, even in its frustration and maybe mundacity and boredom, does it afford you the time to spend time with God? in terms of the commute to and from, or even the task that you're doing whilst you're doing it? Have you actually been gifted something by God that might on the surface be a dead-end thing, 
but actually it's given you loads and loads of time to connect with God, almost like a wilderness experience. Or do you live alone? You haven't got the pressures of family and you've got more time to devote to God, to spend in his presence. Or have you got a dog and you can go for a walk? Maybe the family's always saying, oh, going to walk the dog, Dad? And you think, oh, I don't want to walk the dog again. But actually, walking the dog gives you the time to spend with God and your dog, which is an anagram of God. <laughs> so many of us, we don't have the time we would like to connect with God. At least that's the excuse we use. So many of us, we say, oh, I'm just so busy, I'm so busy. My job is so busy. But, you know, sometimes underestimate the gift of pressure that helps us to use what time we have with God more meaningfully and more effectively. So if you don't have much time to spend with God, well, what time have you got? Because you will have some time. Are you going to use it effectively? And if you want to be effective for the kingdom of God and you're serious about being a public Christian, come what may, you are going to need a place of stillness, a place of solitude, a place of retreat, to hear the Spirit speak to you and then act when he says to you, now. Now is the time to chat to that person. Now is the time to start that ministry that I've been putting on your heart for a few months now. Now's the time to talk to that person at work who's always pestering you about spiritual things. And of course, you'll need each other here in community week on week in the church. Of course, that's the place where we hear from God as well. Finally then, let's look at John's role as a signpost to someone greater. In John's gospel, um, the religious elite in Jerusalem, in chapter 1 of John's gospel, they send messengers to rock up to John the Baptist when they see what he's doing at the Jordan. And they ask him, are you the Messiah? No. No. Then who are you? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? And the prophet was this mysterious figure that was mentioned in Deuteronomy, someone that the Jews were waiting to burst on the scene. It's actually a, an allusion to Christ, but they didn't realize. <laughs> are you the prophet? They ask him, and he says, no. And eventually, they just cave in questioning John, and they say, oh, John, would you just give us an answer to take back to those who sent us, please? What, <laughs> what do you say about yourself? He says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now notice here that John doesn't say who he was. They wanted him to say who he was. He doesn't say who he was. He said why he came instead. To signpost people to Jesus. What a powerful witness. What a powerful messenger of the kingdom. What a powerful character John the Baptist was. And he really was unique in the history of God's unfolding plan. But the speaking of truth was not just for John. It's for all of us in our Christian lives. We are to be truth speakers to whoever will bother to listen to us. And our lives should be signposts to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul, in our reading from Philippians, he encouraged them to live in the light of the day of Christ, meaning his return. 
It's not up to us to make people choose to read the signpost and follow Jesus. But it's down to us to point the way. Because Jesus is coming back. And every eye one day is going to see him. Every knee will bow and acknowledge who he is, even if they don't like it. And every soul will give an account as to how they've lived their lives in light of the message of the truth of the gospel. That's just a fact. That's what the Bible says. He's coming back. So we've got to be signposts. Was John perfect? Did he have all the answers? No, he didn't. Uh, he didn't seem to get the full picture, and that's understa understandable. None of us get the full picture. He didn't get the full picture of what God was up to, and I don't think he needed to know. He found it perplexing that his cousin came to him to be baptized. And when he was thrown into prison for speaking truth to power, we see that he still had his doubts as to whether Jesus was the real deal. You can see that in Matthew 11. Yet in all he did, John still honored Jesus. He carried out his specific calling in his generation. And he was faithful and courageous in how he went about doing it. You know, there is power and authority available to each of us by the Holy Spirit if we choose to speak out in truth and love to others. And when we speak out God's love, it has to be in love. You know, speaking truth is never about being judgmental. And it should never be condemnatory either. Because Jesus didn't come to condemn, did he? John 3.17 came to save, not condemn. Speaking truth is quite simply about speaking truth, isn't it? You know, are you Elijah? They asked John. No. Plain and simple. Plain and simple truth. So how might that play out in our day, in our lives? Well, someone might ask us at work, do you go to church? Yes. Oh, I thought so. You look like one of those churchy lot. <laughs> so are you saying that if I don't follow Jesus, then I've got no hope? Yes. But I believe that if you choose to believe, you will have hope. And do you mind if we grab a coffee and I can explain a little bit about why I believe in God? Can I tell you some of my stories? Maybe tell you a bit about God's story as I listen to some of your stories. Something like that. But the key thing is, is being bold enough to get past those first awkward moments of conversation with someone. Because once people see that we're approachable, truthful, and that we have integrity, they'll be willing to listen to the message that we have. And it won't just be us speaking, it'll be the Holy Spirit speaking through us and speaking into the situation of their heart. So, to close, on this second Sunday in Advent, when we remember the prophets of old, and when we read about John who bridges both the Old and the New Testament, let's believe that today, Advent 21, we, we can communicate this message of repentance to our non-Christian friends. We can do it, you know. That power isn't over. It didn't, didn't end a few centuries ago. It's with us today. The message has power in and of itself. It is good news from heaven and let's resolve shall we to to not be private christians but to be public ones and let's truly live as signposts of jesus in a very confused world amen let's pray shall we